Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. You know how sometimes little kids say things that are cute because they're, you know, they're, they're expressed in kind of a crude or immature way, but at the same time, they're profound and touching because of the innocence and sincerity uh, in their hearts as they say them. So, like, they'll say something that just, it's, you think at first it's funny because of it's, it's worded funny or uh, expressed in, in an interesting way, but then you, it, it makes you think, right? It makes you pause and it, it's more profound than you really realize, right? One of my favorite of these cute profundities in our family came from one of my boys. I think it was Jude when he was like probably four or five. We lived in Texas at the time. And uh, I think he must have recently heard a Sunday school lesson about Psalm 19 that says, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God and the stars are his handiwork. And so like how you look at the creation and you see God at work and you hear his voice and that kind of thing. And so we were driving down the road on a day that had been dominated by dark clouds in the sky. And he suddenly noticed that there were rays of sun piercing through the dark clouds as if trying to spread the clouds away and usher in daylight. And Jude said, look, God is speaking. And I remember at first laughing to myself, thinking that was such a funny way to say that. But then thinking to myself, you know, that's really pretty beautiful. It's really a pretty great way to see just something as simple as sunlight through clouds and recognize that God is speaking, right? God is at work. And that, that really is a good description of what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, dark clouds have gathered and they've dominated the skies of the people of God for years. But scattered throughout this chapter are glimpses of sunlight piercing through the clouds. God is speaking. God is at work. The dark clouds in chapter 2 actually are very thick, and the, the situation is very bleak. We're going to spend some time with the sons of Eli, the priests Hophni and Phinehas, and there's large chunks of text about Hophni and Phinehas uh, throughout this chapter, and they're like dark storm clouds that fill the sky and block out the sun. And then there are these short little interjections about Samuel growing up uh, that are like little rays of sunlight trying to break through the clouds, like beams of light piercing the darkness. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, in that black ESV Bible, it'll be on page uh, 211, somewhere around there. Uh, and we're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 2. And the story is told in kind of intercutting shots, if I can use movie language, intercutting shots between two scenes. One scene is the wickedness of Eli's sons, right? We see Hophni and Phinehas in their, uh, in their evil ways and their rebellion against God. And then the second scene is the purity of young Samuel as he's growing up. Uh, in the priesthood. And so it cuts back and forth between these two scenes. Well, last week we saw Hannah's dedication of Samuel to the Lord. 
Uh, she brought him to Shiloh to, to leave with Eli, uh, to, to grow up in the temple. And then her exuberant uh, prayer uh, concerning God's love and grace, uh, especially his grace toward the lowly and the humble. And then in verse 11, Hannah returns home with her husband, leaving Samuel in Shiloh for good. And so our text today begins with this simple observation in verse 11. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So Samuel is there now in the temple. Hannah and Elkanah and their family have returned home. And uh, that's the situation, right? And if it looks like we're off to a good start in 1 Samuel, we're about to get a harsh dose of reality as we turn our attention to what's been going on in Shiloh. So I'm going to read beginning in verse 12 down through verse 17. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, He would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are the priests. So bear in mind, they're the spiritual leaders of Israel. Their jobs are to represent the people before God and to facilitate their worship of him, right? To help them uh, in their offerings and sacrifices to the Lord and to make sure that they're done according to God's law, right? God had established for them how they would worship him because God, God cares not only that he is worshiped, but he cares how he is worshiped. The approach of God by his people matters. And so the job of the priest is to make sure that people go about the worship of God in the right way. That is according to his word. And yet, just these few sentences about Hophni and Phinehas reveal two guys whose hearts are very far from the Lord and whose carrying out of their office is appalling. We're told in verse 12 that they are worthless men. That is corrupt and wicked and that they did not know the Lord. How utterly tragic for the spiritual leaders of the people of God, the ones responsible for leading the people to worship God, don't even know him. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that they weren't trained in the priesthood or that they were somehow unaware of the temple regulations and God's law concerning the worship of the people. No, they they would have been trained up in the priesthood by Eli. I mean, we get the sense from these early chapters in 1 Samuel that Eli was generally a good man and, and, and tried to do his best to worship the Lord and lead the people of God in worship of the Lord 
uh, in the right way. And so we, we assume that he has raised his children and taught them and trained them in the ways of God and trained them in the priesthood. And so to think that these priests now don't know the Lord at all is utterly tragic. And listen, the tragedy is not, the tragedy is that even though they know these things, even though they know the, the ways of the priesthood and they understand what they're supposed to do and they've got the qualifications, so to speak, they have no personal knowledge or interest in God himself. And it shouldn't surprise us that Eli's sons made a mockery of the priesthood since they don't have a relationship with God at all. Listen, solid training and proper credentials don't qualify someone to lead God's people. A Christian heritage generations long and a stack of seminary degrees are utterly useless and even a detriment if there is no relationship with God. That is the most important qualification for a person who will stand in front of God's people and lead and instruct. They must know the Lord. How many flocks of God's people have been unwittingly led astray by the unqualified leadership of pastors and teachers who don't know God? Brothers and sisters, pray for God to raise up men of good character who know Jesus well to help serve the church as elders and leaders. Well, we're told about two particular uh, offenses. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis calls them liturgical offenses that is having to do with the worship of God uh, in these verses. Number one, they are taking more than their fair share of boiled meat from the peace offering. So the people of Israel were to bring uh, meat to boil as a peace offering, and uh, God had already allotted a certain portion of the meat to be given to the priests. Because again, the, the priests uh, under the Old Covenant uh, were the sons of Aaron, uh, the descendants of, of Levi, and they didn't work the ground and, and, and farm land for a living, they lived off of their ministry, right? Their work was to facilitate the worship of God among the people. And so their living was eating a portion of these meat offerings that people would bring uh, in their worship of God. And so they were already supposed to get a portion of the meat of a peace offering. And yet here they are not satisfied with the portion that God had allotted for them, but instead, uh, coming in with, if uh, sending a servant, it says, uh, some, some lackey of Hophni and Phineas goes in with this three-pronged fork and stabs around in the pot and whatever comes up, which I assume would be the largest, juiciest chunk of meat, the priests then keep for themselves. And whatever is left is what the people would get to offer to the Lord. Secondly, they're stealing raw cuts of meat before they could be burned as a burnt offering. Again, there's different kinds of offerings that the people of Israel were, uh, were commanded to give. And so a burnt offering, they would take this raw meat and burn the fat as a way of honoring God. So they honored Yahweh through the burning of the fat and then they would uh, sacrifice or offer the, the, the raw meat uh, to be cooked as an offering. Uh, but the priests now uh, say, well, we're not satisfied with just boiled meat anymore. We need your raw cuts. We need those juicy raw steaks that you're bringing. And so give it to us now. 
And when the people would object and essentially tell the priests how they're supposed to do their job, um, actually, let me burn the fat off first in honor of God, and then you can take the meat. Then they would turn thug and take it by force. So, basically, Hophni and Phineas are using their position for their own personal gain to the detriment of the worshipers of God and at great insult to God himself. And indeed, verse 17 tells us how God feels about these offenses. Lest we're tempted to think, well, so they had a little bit more meat than they were supposed to have. Maybe they were just extra hungry. What's the big deal? Look at verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now listen, I know we don't like to like classify sins or put degrees of sinfulness uh, on, on people's sin, right? All sin is sin. It's all the same, right? And in one sense, that's true. If you break one part of God's law, you've broken all of God's law, like, like the book of James tells us. But in another sense, there are some sins that are a greater affront to God a greater offense against his holiness than others. And when the leaders of the people of God who are supposed to facilitate their worship and honoring of God instead corrupt the worship of God for their own personal gain, it is a very great sin in the sight of the Lord. How do they describe, how does he describe that sin? They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They didn't care about God's honor. They had no regard for his worship. They stood in the way of God's people worshiping him rightly, and they cast a dark shadow of dishonor upon the Lord himself. What an affront to God. But let's not be too hasty here. Let's not miss an opportunity to examine our own hearts and to consider our own worship of God. Could it be said of us at times that we treat the offering of the Lord with contempt? Is it ever true of us that we approach the worship of God like a casual, meaningless ritual? Just sing the songs, drop a dollar in the plate, sit through the sermon, and off we go, right? Is it possible that sometimes we sing songs that are full of fervent devotion to God while our hearts are distant and unmoved? Are we ever guilty of tuning out while God's word is preached, thinking about my lunch plans or my to-do list instead of giving attention to what God has to say to me through his word? Friends, let's be careful in our approach of God and worship. Let's not take lightly the opportunity and the responsibility to gather in Christ's name and ascribe glory to him. He is worthy of our sincere and reverent attention. Well, with these dark clouds gathering in Shiloh, rays of light attempt to stab through the darkness in verse 18. Look with me uh, at verse 18, and I'll read the next few verses. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. 
Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Samuel is growing up in the temple. He's learning the ways of God. Presumably Eli is teaching him God's law and the work of a priest. It's tough to imagine Hophni and Phinehas bothering with the training of a little boy, so we assume Eli is the one uh, who is training him. <clears throat> the text tells us that he is wearing a linen ephod, a young boy in a linen ephod. This is the official garment worn during priestly duties. So he is growing up being trained as a priest. And it tells us that his mother Hannah keeps sewing him robes, uh, the, just a little bit bigger each year to fit him better as he grows up. And each year when she comes to offer sacrifices at Shiloh, she brings him a new robe and gets to visit and, and get just a glimpse of little Samuel as he's growing up in the temple. Just think of her joy as she sees year after year her son given to her by God, growing and learning, coming to know God and preparing to serve the nation. Well, Eli further blesses Hannah and Elkanah, saying, May the Lord give you children for the petition she asked of the Lord, literally in place of the petition that she asked of the Lord. Because what she asked of the Lord, a son, has been given to the Lord, right? And so he's literally saying, in the place of Samuel, Lord, would you give Hannah more sons, right? Uh, and Sure enough, in the coming years, by God's grace, she has three sons and two daughters. And with that note, Hannah is off the scene. And we don't see any more uh, from Hannah or Elkanah or from Samuel's family of origin. But she stands in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 for every generation to see a testimony to God's kindness and a faithful example of fervent prayer and sincere spiritual devotion. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And while Samuel grows, the drama with Eli and his sons continues. And indeed, as they say, the plot thickens. Let's look at the next few verses, beginning in verse 22. Eli is going to uh, attempt to correct his sons and, and, and change their course. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. This is heavy. These clouds are thick and dark indeed. We've now learned that Hophni and Phinehas, in addition to their egregious offenses against God in violating his worship, are also bringing disgrace upon him by violating the women of Israel when they came to worship. This is scandalous and indeed repulsive even to consider. 
the women who are serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting are presumably there to worship God. Their service there is intended for Yahweh's honor, perhaps as a part of their offering to him. And Hophni and Phinehas have apparently been harassing these women, no doubt using their positions of authority as leverage to take advantage of them or to persuade them to give in to their wishes. In our Me Too culture, where scores of men in positions of leadership have been found guilty of harassment and abuse of women, this crime cannot escape our notice. And tragically, this abuse doesn't just take place out there in the secular world, it's taking place in the church as well. Christian leaders, both obscure and very high profile, have been accused of similar crimes within their own congregations. To quote the book of James, brothers, these things ought not be so. Leaders in the church, in the workplace, or in the home that objectify and abuse women, and I should add children, must be called out and held to account. Well, Eli attempts to do that with his sons rebuking both their liturgical and their moral offenses. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. This is not private, hidden sin. It is public. It is scandalous. His sternest words come in verse 25, and it's very perceptive. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And in a sentence, Eli has done a wonderful job of summarizing the plight of sinners in the face of a holy God. When wrong is done between one man and another, God may settle the dispute, perhaps through one of his appointed judges. I think that's what Eli is saying when he says that God may, uh, may mediate for him. In other words, God can help, even through human agency, uh, settle a dispute between men. But when a person's sin is against the Lord himself, and indeed all sins are ultimately against him, who can possibly intercede for him? We need a mediator. We need someone to stand between us and God, to plead our case, to represent us before him, and to negotiate peace, as it were, between us and God. Keep your eye, bookmark that thought, our need for a mediator. We'll come back to it. Well, Eli's warning to Hophni and Phinehas falls on deaf ears. It's too little, too late. But pay attention to why the warning is too late and why they will not listen. Verse 25, there in the middle, it says, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for, that is because, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The sequence here is essential to see. God did not put them to death because they didn't heed their, the warning. They did not heed the warning because God had already decided to judge them. What does this mean? It means that there is such a thing as too late when it comes to repentance. There is a season of opportunity to respond to God's grace. And then there is a point of no return where God stops speaking to a seared conscience and hands them over to their rebellion. Dale Ralph Davis says, 
this text teaches that someone can remain so firm in his rebellion that God will confirm him in it, so much so that he will remain utterly deaf to and unmoved by any warnings of judgment or pleas for repentance. Friends, this should give us pause. This should make us tremble. Sin is no joking matter. It is not to be trifled with. It is deadly and it is deafening. You can carry on so long in sin, unbothered, comfortable, complacent, that God stops calling to you. Please don't get comfortable with your sin. If you think to yourself, it's okay, I can always stop this later, or I'm sure God will forgive me if I do this, so I'll just go ahead, you are treading on dangerously thin ice. Hebrews 3.15 urges, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Repentance is for today. It cannot wait until tomorrow. It might be too late. Well, lest this dark cloud become more than we can bear, let's get our eye on another ray of sunlight piercing the clouds. Look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. The priesthood of Eli's house is going down. Meanwhile, Samuel is growing up and he's increasing in favor with God and with people. And we see happening what Hannah prayed earlier in chapter two, the Lord brings low and the Lord exalts. Davis says, these brief Samuel notes are worthy, are noteworthy. They tell us that, that Yahweh is already at work providing for new godly leadership for his people. There are no slogans, no campaigns, no speeches. It is all very quiet. Growth seldom makes noise, and Yahweh is growing his new leader. Eli's sons dominated the picture. All Israel suffered under their arrogant, cynical, immoral priesthood. It must have seemed to many like there was no hope of improvement, no exit from the night. But in the middle of it all, the text keeps whispering, don't forget Samuel. You see how Samuel is serving. That is Yahweh's manner, quietly providing for the next moment, even in the middle of the darkest moments. That's how the Lord works. Even in the middle of our darkest moments, you might be in the middle of a dark moment right now wondering what good could possibly come of this. Friends, take heart. God is at work in a thousand ways that you have no idea, that you simply cannot see. He's at work for the next moment, even in the midst of our darkest ones. And speaking of dark moments, we have one more that we must consider this morning. And it's uh, the longest chunk of text. So we're going to read it. We won't be able to, to focus on uh, every detail uh, of it, but we'll read it and then draw out just a few important things, starting in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come, this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Well, again, we can't hover on every detail of this prophecy, delivered incidentally by a man of God about whom we know nothing. It doesn't tell us anything about where he came from or who he is, and we don't hear from him again. But his prophecy proves entirely true. So let's take note of three important things from this prophecy. Number one, Eli is complicit in his son's wickedness in the eyes of God. He may have participated in some measure. Verse 29 tells us, uh, tells us that he honored his uh, sons above the Lord by participating, uh, excuse me, by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of the offering. And so it could be that Eli, though he did not himself um, steal the meat from the offerings, uh, nevertheless may have enjoyed the spoils, if you will, of uh, what his sons had uh, attained. And so uh, in some measure, he may have participated in the wickedness of his sons. But even then, even if he hadn't done that, uh, his rebuke of his sons was too little too late because his long-standing tolerance of their scandalous offenses was sufficient for him to be held to account. Just letting it go on and on, because he, the, the writer tells us that this happened year after year. This is what they subjected the people of Israel to. So for a long time, these things were going on, and Eli never put a stop to it. And so even in his attempt to correct his sons, he did not put an end to it. And so in some measure, he is held accountable, responsible for his son's wickedness simply because he tolerated their sin for so long. To quote Davis again, he says, This prophecy against Eli emphasizes that you can end up in grave sin by thinking it very important to be nice to people. How easy it is to practice a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone, that equates niceness with love, and thereby ignores God's law 
and essentially despises his holiness. We do not necessarily seek God's honor when we spare human feelings. This is good for us to remember. Avoiding a confrontation or withholding a hard truth is not always loving or kind. May the Lord make us people who are willing to share uncomfortable truth about ourselves and invite correction for the sake of holiness and God's glory. So Eli is complicit in his son's wickedness. Second, the priesthood will be removed from Eli's family as judgment. He tells Eli, there will not be an old man in your house, in verse 31, implying, I think, his own untimely death. There won't be an old man in your house because you will not live to be an old man. That's essentially what he's telling him. So, And I'm going to find someone else right, to do your job. I'm removing the mantle of the priesthood from you in judgment. And as a sign that this is truly from the Lord and this will come to pass, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, verse 34, will die on the same day. So God is removing the mantle of the priesthood from Eli and his household, and he's going to prove it by killing his sons on the same day. This is a hard word. Finally, number three, and this is the most important thing I want you to see from this whole prophecy. God will raise up a faithful priest. Did you see verse 35? I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, I'm not sure what this man of God understood himself to be saying as he delivered this message, and I'm not sure what Eli thought that it meant or, or who was in view when, in, in this faithful priest. And I think the prophecy most immediately was fulfilled by a priest named Zadok, who God would appoint to serve under King David. You can read about his appointment in 1 Kings chapter 2. And he's also mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 17, the priest Zadok serving under King David. And so I think most immediately the faithful priest who will go in and out before his anointed is Zadok. So he's replacing Eli with this servant, this priest named Zadok. But you know, I believe that there's another priest in view here as well. Note that God will build him a sure house. That's very similar to the language that God used to, to David in 2 Samuel 7 when he makes a covenant with David that someone from his family would reign forever. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So when he says, I'm going to raise up a priest and I'm going to give him a sure house, I'm thinking this sounds a lot like the covenant that God made with David. And note that this priest would go in and out before my anointed forever. Listen, there's only one king who would reign on David's throne forever. And there's only one priest who would serve at the altar forever. The one who indeed would be both priest and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that's who is in view here when God says that he will raise up a faithful priest. 
I believe he's talking about the priest and king who would come from the line of David and reign on David's throne and serve as the king of God's people and also of the priest who would represent the people of God before him. I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, which tells us this about Jesus and his role as a priest. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus Christ comes in the place of David the king and in the place of the priest, and he serves faithfully forever. And he ends the work of the priest of making these sacrifices day after day and year after year by himself becoming the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ would come into the world and take our sins upon himself and carry them to a cross where he would give up his own life willingly for our sins. And it's this priest, it's this Jesus who represents us before God. You remember Eli saying to his sons, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This is the one. This is the one who intercedes for us. This is the one who mediates for us. This is the one who negotiates peace between us and a holy God because he took our sins upon himself and he goes before us into the presence of God and through faith in Christ and what he accomplished for us at the cross, we come before the presence of God cleansed and righteous and holy. We have a great opportunity this morning to take the Lord's Supper where we have a visual reminder of the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins. And in just a moment, we'll get to do that. And let's remember that Jesus Christ is this faithful priest that God has raised up for himself and he's priest forever and he is our mediator. Let's pray.